Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, as genetic testing becomes easier and cheaper than ever before, I'll be investigating the good. There's lifestyle and there's surgical treatments that are available that you will be guided by your genetic tests. The bad. People are concerned that if employers have genetic information, they will use it in employment decisions. And the unexpected. Turns out, um, although I'm a very proud French-Canadian, I'm barely French. I am actually very Italian. As we start to probe the secrets of our own DNA and ask, should you get your genome sequenced? I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. I'd be really interested to get a genetic test, yes, but I'd also be quite nervous about it. But yeah, I'd be really keen to get a genetic test. No, not really. Just don't see the point of, you know, knowing what... What's, what's what going to happen around the corner? Sort of, you know, sort of take every day as it comes, really. Uh, I think it would be interesting to get a genetic test. Um, it could tell you a lot about yourself and also that you could maybe plan for the future that way, so it could be quite interesting. No. I suppose because it might reveal certain things that I'd rather not know. Yeah, definitely. I come from uh, Lithuania, and, you know, the ethnic group from that country is quite old. So there's a lot of mixture from different, you know, from Asia, from Northern Europe. So I'd just like to see what, you know, what the majority of my ethnicity is. Ready or not, the genetic age is upon us. DNA tests are being used all over the world. By engaged couples seeing if they're genetically compatible. By migration services aiming to prove or disprove ancestry. And by health services to try and tailor medicine to your DNA. And now, direct-to-consumer tests mean we can, if we want, choose to take a peek inside our own genetic code. But is this a force for good, enlightening us about our health and showing us who we are? Or are we opening Pandora's box and learning things about us that we should be keeping hidden? I'll be investigating all the insights you can get from your own DNA, like your past, present and future, and the legal and ethical questions that have arisen because of this. So to start with... What is DNA? First and foremost, it's the molecule that is in every cell in our body. It's a code in some ways that codes for life. You know, how does how do we go from being a single cell to the multi-cell complicated emotional organism that's a human? 
This is Patrick Short, a PhD student at the University of Cambridge and the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. We had a chat about the famous double helix DNA, with help from a couple of props. Oh, we've got two ukuleles. <laughs> because ukuleles and DNA, believe it or not, have something in common. Yeah, so there's four bases, uh, A, T, G, and C. So it's like the four strings on the ukulele. You can think of it as A, T, G, and C. And uh, they combine in different orders to to code for proteins and also to, as an instruction manual, really to tell the cell uh, what proteins it's supposed to make, when it's supposed to make them. As you can imagine, just like in music, there's a, a limitless number of combinations, right? We can do A, T, G, C, or we could do A, 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 T, G, C, you know, just like the strings on a ukulele, we can... Uh, we can go on and on. Any song you can imagine, you could play. And uh, that's DNA. That's that's part of what makes it so complex. There's there's limitless possibilities of how you could fit these letters together. So humans, for instance, we have about 6 billion A's, T's, G's, and C's all in a row. Uh, and so just thinking about that number and how, uh, how many possible ways you could fit A's, T's, G's, and C's together. If you had a six billion notes to play on the ukulele you could uh you could have quite a long song so <laughs> yeah. yeah so there's a lot of information in there so i think that's the one of the things that i find it quite hard to get my head around so you have just these four letters how how does that actually become anything yeah so the most basic kind of building block of what a cell can do is produce proteins uh, and on the genetic level the dna turns into the proteins using something that we call the triplet code. So it's every three bases of DNA within a gene corresponds to a different amino acid. So you might have A, T, and G together that correspond to one amino acid, and you might have yeah, G, C, T that together correspond to another amino acid. And these uh, sequences of three DNA bases string together to become a protein. Uh, so we have machinery in our cells called the ribosome that assembles, that takes this DNA and actually assembles proteins out of it. So it's this triplet code that allows us to go from DNA to proteins. And then proteins do stuff in the cell. You know, they uh, they move things around. They control what what a cell can do and how it can move around and those sorts of things. Yeah. So it's all it's all there somewhere. So this basic triplet code of three letters can be read by machinery inside the cell, which uses it to build amino acids, which in turn build proteins, which is eventually how we get from A, T, G, C to you and me. You get half of your DNA from your dad and half from your mum, who in turn got it from their parents, which is why it's such a powerful tool for looking at ancestry. But how do you actually look at your DNA? Essentially, uh, genome sequencing, which has become incredibly fast and cheap in the last decade or so, allows us to take the DNA that's in each of our cells, usually either blood or saliva, and systematically decode what is the order of A, T, G, and C, uh, all six billion letters in each of us. And the way it works broadly is we take the DNA from the cells, we smash it up into billions of pieces, usually a couple hundred letters at a time. And uh, they're really expensive and uh, quite sophisticated instruments that are used to actually take fluorescently labeled bases and attach them to the DNA. And then a big camera, a high resolution camera watches the whole process. So basically, we get this pretty amazing image that's these letters 
being incorporated into the DNA. It's sort of like a, a copying process that we're watching happen. And as these fluorescent letters get incorporated, they're a different color. So A is one color, and G is one color, and C is one color, and T is a fourth. And so these high-resolution cameras pick up this copying process going on and then translate the colors back into the sequence. And then because it's a, a bunch of really tiny pieces, we then have to kind of assemble them back together uh, into what is our six billion letter DNA. And this technology has raced along at breakneck speeds from where it started. The number that's frequently assigned is about a billion dollars to sequence the first that's a single person, and it took about 10 years. And today it's less than a thousand dollars, and we're sequencing hundreds and thousands. And this is way faster than, than almost anyone anticipated. So we think of uh, how quickly computers have uh, have gained in speed and also decreased in size and genome sequencing has outstripped even that exponentially so mo- i think most people would not have uh, even predicted we'd be close to a thousand dollars a genome and some people think it's going to go down to a hundred within the next five years so it's quite a it's quite a dramatic drop that's allowed us to do some amazing research as dna testing gets cheaper and easier in future we can start to understand more about ourselves But by and large, exactly what each bit of DNA does is still a bit of a mystery. So we're not even close uh, to understanding everything, which is exciting because it means there's much more to learn. Um, But it also means, you know, if you're given your genome sequence, uh, it's almost impossible to tell you what that means from uh, the standpoint of, of your risk for certain diseases. So there's a lot of effort in this area to kind of construct risk factors, you know, given your genetic background, how likely are you to have Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or, uh, or cardiac arrest or those sorts of things. And we're beginning to understand how the genome turns into uh, risk for these diseases, but we're really actually only just scratching the surface. Yeah. Patrick Short. If you want to get a genetic test, there are now companies offering this very service. These often don't look at the whole genome, but small, relevant parts. So what can they tell us? Marco Naharis is a medical student at the University of Oxford who gave one a go. I chose to get my DNA tested because I think it's just another health metric, just like knowing your body mass index or your full blood count. Um, And it could tell me what risk factors I might have for certain genetic diseases or what medicines might work better or worse for certain conditions that I might develop. And also because I did a research project on schizophrenia genetics and I wanted to know what my genetic risk factor for schizophrenia was. It was actually a really simple process. I signed up online and I received a pack through the mail. That included a plastic tube for me to provide a saliva sample and I mailed it back. And in three months I received my results online and the service provided an interpretation for some gene versions, but I was also able to download my raw data so I could check it against my own research. I find out lots of really cool things, such as having some very distant ancestry from East Asia, Southern Europe, South Asia, and even the Middle East. And uh, I even have Neanderthal DNA. Uh, Thankfully, I also found out that I don't carry any risk genes for certain conditions like cystic fibrosis, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. But sadly, now I've also found out why I'm so lactose intolerant and shorter than your average male at five foot seven. Margot Naharis here on The Naked Scientists. 
so Marco's test told him he had no risk factors for certain diseases. Always nice to know. But these tests can tell you some things you might be less keen to hear. If you had a crystal ball that would reveal your disease destiny, would you look inside it? A lot of people get DNA testing from professional health services for this very reason. They might have already had a disease and are looking for a genetic cause, or they might have a family history of a disease and want to know if they've got it. But this information can be a blessing or a curse, and equally, it's not always clear what it means, which is where genetic counsellors come in. My name is Jonathan Roberts. I'm a genetic counsellor, and I'm a PhD student at King's College London and the Wellcome Genome Campus. Genetic counsellors work in hospitals alongside other health professionals um, and it's a focusing on the supporting people as they go through genetic testing. So genetic testing can be quite a challenging process both in terms of the amount of information you have to take on but also there's an emotional aspect to lots of genetic testing. You know it can be um, a significant piece of news. There's also a familial aspect so it doesn't just affect you it affects your family in, in lots of cases. So there's lots of other aspects that patients need supporting with as they go through genetic testing genetic cancer's job is to do i guess there's there's a number of areas that you can kind of split genetics into one is prenatal testing so this is um, when you're looking for the cause of a sort of developmental delay or childhood onset condition so an example of this might be something like uh, cystic fibrosis you may have heard of and uh, this is a recessive condition so you have to have a copy from both mum and dad and cystic fibrosis causes a lot of problems with things like breathing and um, it affects lots of other um, organs and you can test for that and that can be very useful if you have a diagnosis for that in a child in terms of allowing families to kind of make future decisions in terms of um, family planning. There's other stuff things like cancer is a big part of genetic counsellors workload so the two most famous genes probably BRCA1 and BRCA2 so Angelina Jolie made these a lot more famous when she had testing for BRCA1 and this was a gene that causes an increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer, as, as well as a few others. And um, it's not a certainty. So if you have one an alteration in one of these genes, you're not definitely going to get breast or ovarian cancer, but it does lead to a significantly increased risk. And what you can do is you can have um, preventative measures or so things like um, increased screening from a certain age, or if you choose to risk reducing surgery, so say mastectomy, for example. But then there's lots of other areas. So cardiac genetics is something that's, that's a growing area as well. And that's similar to cancer genetics in a way that often you're dealing with increased risks and often your genetic test can lead to quite clear kind of treatment and diagnostic options. I suppose if, you, if you're likely to have a heart attack, you can be like, well, I'm going to cut down on my fatty foods and, and do some cardio. There are some very clear cut things you can do about it. But there's also many conditions that we don't as yet know of any cure and this could be something like Huntington's so what happens if someone knows they're likely or definitely going to get something that we can't cure? So Huntington's disease is, is a is a good example of something where there's no treatment for the disease that you, you can treat the symptoms but there's no way of halting the progression of the disease that is a very challenging case for genetic counselling because the primary focus then is allowing a patient to make the decision that's right for them. So actually, in the case of Huntington's disease, most people choose not to know. But there are some people who would like to know in terms of planning their life and knowing, having the uncertainty taken away. Um, and it's it's about it's about choice and it's about, about control. And for some people in that situation, control is choosing to know 
and choosing to plan their lives and choosing to have that information. And for some people, choosing is not to know. Huntington's disease is caused by a mutation in a single gene. And if a test picks up the change we know is responsible, it's pretty much guaranteed you'll develop symptoms. But a lot of diseases aren't so clear cut. Lots of genes might only slightly affect your chances of developing cancer or heart attacks. So this can mean the results of a genetic test aren't always clear. So I think helping patients understand risk is a really important and quite challenging part of genetic counselling. Um, because risk is um, something that can be explained in lots of different ways. So you can have a lifetime risk. So you might say you have an 80% risk or something over your lifetime. You might also explain it in a 10-year risk. So you might say, in the, you know, if somebody's 30, you might say in the next 10 years, your risk is this. When you're talking about those, you're talking about absolute risks. So you're talking about the clear chance that something is going to happen. An example of an absolute risk is a coin toss. The absolute risk of getting heads is 50%. Then you might talk about relative risk and relative risk is a bit more tricky because then you're talking about risk, one risk compared to another. So let's say your risk of something is 1% and then it goes up to 2%. Now you could say that that's a 1% absolute increased risk, but you, as a relative risk, it's doubled. So that means it's 100%. So when you're giving risk figures, relative risk can sound very scary because you might say your risk has gone up 100% and actually all it's done has gone up from 1% to 2%. So it's very important to be very clear and go through the risks in quite a lot of detail because there's lots of different ways you can talk about risk and that can be quite confusing and then quite worrying for patients. Genetic counsellors provide this service to take you through these results but you can also get some of this information from kits you can buy online there have been concerns in the past that some services might provide inaccurate results or fail to provide context or clarity. However, just this week, in a landmark ruling, the FDA, the Food and Drugs Administration, gave permission for home testing kit 23andMe to send people information about their risks of 10 diseases, which include Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which means we're likely to see a lot more of these home testing services in the future. So can you trust what you see in a test you get online? So it depends a little bit on what they're looking for. Um, so the um, tests can look for different things. One of the things they can look for is um, single genes that are the cause of certain conditions like early onset Alzheimer's or BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, what they do is they look for specific points in those genes, so specific genetic changes that they know cause those um, conditions. So if they find one of these genetic changes, that's a pretty clear result. That's, that's going to be quite accurate. What's important with a lot of these direct-to-consumer tests is, is that they don't look across the whole gene. Very often, they're just looking for the particular points they know about. So if they don't find something, that doesn't rule out there being a genetic change. There could still be something. So this is what they, we refer to as positive and negative predictive value. So positive predictive value means what's the chance of this finding being true? Is it real? And the positive predictive value of a lot of these tests is very high. But the negative predictive value, which is the chance is, is this a real negative test? it can often be low. So that means there could still be a gene change that they haven't found. So my advice to those people who have those tests would be, if you have any questions, then you could, you know, seek a referral and get, get professional advice because it's important to understand the real meaning of these tests. And whatever kind of test you get, Jonathan highlighted that it's key you know what kind of results you might get and making sure you really do want to know them. 
what can happen sometimes in genetic counselling is if people, someone's got a result that they don't expect, that can often have a psychologically adverse reaction. So one of the reasons that we prepare people for different types of results is that it's helpful to think through kind of, you know, how much of an effect that's going to have on your life. And what, what can really kind of hit people hard uh, in terms of genetic testing is when you get a result and you just weren't expecting it. So that's one of the reasons that a lot of the focus is placed on trying to explain to people, kind of doing informed consent and allowing people to think through the implications of a genetic test. And unlike other indications of your health, like your blood pressure or your weight, DNA is very different. For example, if you've got a gene for something, your family are likely to have it too. And they didn't get a genetic test, so do you tell them? Should you have to? It's an open question, but people are asking it in the courts. A woman is currently suing a hospital for not disclosing genetic information. So her father had Huntington's disease, and for various different reasons, he decided not to disclose this information to her. And then she went and she had a child. And then later on, it was disclosed by accident by a health professional that the diagnosis was Huntington's disease. So then this woman Googles, as you would do, and then finds out this is inherited and it's untreatable. And she says that she wouldn't have gone and had a child if she had known there was this risk in the family. She'd have had testing first. She had testing and it turns out that she has inherited the HD gene from her father. So she is arguing that the health professionals had a duty to break her father's confidentiality and tell her about the genetic tests. Um, And of course, this is difficult for the hospital because health professionals are so used to seeing confidentiality as this kind of sacrosanct thing. But in genetics, it raises a really important question of whose information is it? Because it's a piece of information for you, but it's also your family's information. So that's going through the courts. That's going to be a really interesting outcome in terms of healthcare practice and genetics practice. The fact that DNA ties us together with our family is exactly why some people are interested in it, because as well as your possible future, your DNA holds the key to your past. Many online services claim to offer you clues about your ancestry. Peter Forster is a fellow in archaeology in Cambridge University, and he owns one such company, Roots for Real, which people use for a variety of different reasons. For example, there are some people who don't even know who their parents are, adopted children, for example. And uh, for these people, we can tell them your mother's from China, your, your father's from West Africa, and we can do this using DNA tests. Going further back into time, some people have, for example, heard their ancestry might be Jewish some 500 years ago. And then you can also do tests and see, yes, do you have a maternal line, a mother's line, which is very similar to other Jewish people or not. And if you go back even further into into the distant past, some people are interested, do I descend from, you know, a, a Celtic line, which has been in Britain, let's say, for three, four, five thousand years, or uh, do I come from a Saxon line? And uh, this is actually going back 2,000 years. And then there are those who want to go back tens of thousands of years into the Stone Age at the time when the continents were settled, uh, and they want to want to trace back the the history of how humans across continents are related, and uh, so you have many different uh, motivations. And this, as I have explained, translates into different timelines and different time depths that you're looking at. 
I guess just yeah, outline the process from start to finish. Someone comes to you and says, "I want to find out all about my past." Um, how, what would you do? How would you get their DNA? And then how would you look at the information in it? Well, typically they'd order a test on our website, Roots for Real, and uh, then my colleagues would send them a swab kit. So they swab saliva. Um, they swab themselves and uh, send the saliva back to us. Uh, and then we do uh, DNA sequencing. Um, and depending on what kind of test they ordered, whether it's a paternity test or whether it's a female or male line test, um, we then produce the uh, raw results, first of all, in the sense that we determine the DNA profiles. And then subsequently, we would do the statistical calculation um, for this deep ancestry that would typically be database searches. And then we would email them, first of all, a result saying, uh, this is uh, our preliminary result. We think, you know, you have this type and you come from this part of the world and there are surnames such and such which match your surname possibly or your father's surname who, whom you don't know if you're an adopted child. And then a couple of days later, we print the results and some explanations and send these results to the people who've ordered the test. And so why would um, a string of DNA letters be different in someone from, say, Tibet, um, from someone from Wales? This is actually the research that I've been doing since the early 1990s as a student. And the answer to your question is uh, 60,000 years old. Uh, that is when we calculated... Uh, when humans left Africa as a small group, less than 200 people, and uh, settled the rest of the world continent by continent, and uh, arriving in Europe by about 40, 45,000 years ago, Australia also about 50,000 years ago, then uh, Native Americans arose from an Asian population about 20,000 years ago. And what creates these differences between humans on various continents and in, even within continents is not the fact that we've been separated for a very long time. If you think about a 60,000 years, you know, it's 2,000 generations, that's not a very long time. So the differences between humans are not that ancient. But what is crucial is that the founding populations for each continent were very small. So as I said, out of Africa, we had perhaps 200 people leaving. Into America, other groups have calculated 70 people are ancestral to all Native Americans today. 70 people, a founding population of 70, 20,000 years ago. Uh, so these are very small numbers. And because these numbers are so small, there is a huge opportunity for people to be different from their ancestral population because um, only a small part of the genetic variation has been carried over onto the new continent or onto the new island. I see. So this very small starting population size mean that there's just a very distinctive um, genetic fingerprint, I suppose, in the different parts of the world that's still imprinted in us today. Yes, that's exactly one way how to put it. What about going even further back? Because I know some people have been delighted to find out that they're part Neanderthal. So how does that work? Um, well, this goes back to a paper some years ago where um, researchers found that um, some of the DNA in Europeans and Asians seems to look very ancient. Um, you find uh, it's about 2% or so. You find it in Neanderthals, but importantly, you don't seem to find it in Africans. So those researchers uh, offer two explanations. One is that people outside Africa are mixed with Neanderthals, and therefore they have this 2% ancient DNA in their genomes. 
And the other reason uh, they uh, gave in the research publication was that there was no mixture with Neanderthals, but the Africans in the past 60,000 years, since we left Africa, have lost about a couple of percent of their DNA variation, which we outside Africa have retained. And that makes our 2% retained DNA look similar to Neanderthals. So those are the two theories. And the media, excuse me, of course, will go for the more exciting theory, which is to say that we are derived uh, from Neanderthals in those 2%. What kind of people have you had personally using your service? Uh, yes, so my first case was from the uh, German police who had recovered a skeleton of a female from the river mine, which flows through Frankfurt, and nobody had been reported missing. And so they didn't know where to start asking questions, and they'd heard that I do these ancestry tests and asked me, could I take a look at this mitochondrial DNA sequence from this uh, skeleton? And uh, it turned out we had several hits in Sicily and nowhere else in the database. And uh, we provided them with our conclusion. So that, that was the very first entry or application. So my first customer was a skeleton. But speaking of skeletons, genetic tests can reveal some unexpected family secrets. Take birds, for example. Many birds were assumed to be monogamous. They mated for life and played happy families. But then genetic testing came along and happily smashed that illusion. On average, about one in ten of the eggs from these monogamous birds were from a different daddy. And in some species, this number is high as 76%. Even swans, those famous symbols of love and loyalty, have been shown to participate in what scientists call extra-pair copulations. So is DNA testing going to open a similar can of worms in our own species? After all, it's been suggested that undetected infidelity rates are extremely high. This is an urban myth which was created at a conference in the early 1970s when a medical doctor claimed, I think, that 20% or so of children are not the children of the father whom they think is the father. Uh, and in fact, in our uh, uh, DNA casework, where we do, for example, immigration testing, um, we find that the, the real rate uh, of infidelity, of undetected infidelity, is only 1.3% in Europe. So that is uh, the real figure, much, much lower than the urban myth has it. I think um, in practice we've had... Um, only one case over the over the several years we've been in the service where there was an unexpected result um, that that surprised the client. Um, in, in that case, where a, a half brother turned out to be a full brother. So while your results don't have a huge chance of containing family destroying drama bombs, there still might be some surprises. So I am Philippe Bugeaud. Uh, I am a French-Canadian neuroscientist here at Cambridge, so I'm a PhD student studying decision neuroscience. And I recently took a genetic test uh, to figure out where my ancestors are from. I think that's something that a lot of people coming from North America um, are interested in doing because we don't know where we're from. I mean, most Caucasians from there are not originally from there. So, yeah, we decided to take one of them mostly because we've always talked about being French-Canadian, so we have to be a bit of Irish, a bit of French. So we did one of them, and turns out, um, although I'm a very proud French-Canadian, I'm barely French. Um, I'm actually very Italian um, and a little bit of Irish, but that means that someone in my family lied very much. 
Because it's actually quite high. It's 37% that is Italian slash Greek. Um, and so initially, the first thing me and my sister talked about was, ooh, someone in our family has been a liar. And then we were trying to figure out which grandma is it, which grandpa is it. So we went digging and... Our ancestry probably immigrated to France just before getting kicked out to Canada, basically. So I think that's the story behind it. We don't know for sure, but that's how it felt. And then we felt a lot more um, exotic. I'm very happy I did it. We've heard how genetic testing can give us some insights into our health, our past, our future. And provided you take the results with a pinch of salt and you know what you're getting into, it can be a powerful tool to find out about yourself. But then... Who owns this data? Can it ever be kept private? And can it be used against you by insurers and employers? That's coming up. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills. And we're asking the question, should you get your genome sequenced? We've heard about some of the things you can learn from a genetic test. There's your ancestry, your risks for some diseases, but some people feel uneasy about getting one. And this was one of the most common reasons we heard when we asked why. What really put me off doing genetic testing was uh, health insurance companies potentially finding out that I was more predisposed to heart disease or diabetes or something. And I just don't want that kind of information to be used against me in the future. I don't want that data to be out there and available and potentially fall into the wrong hands or hands that I just didn't anticipate them falling into. Is there a chance your data could fall into the wrong hands? And if so, what could they do with it? Well, I found out if your DNA reaches the right hands, it can also do a whole lot of good, as scientists can use it for research. Here's Head of Society and Ethics Research at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge, Anna Middleton. So I was exploring the role of genomics in big data. So basically the two go hand in hand. So to um, work out what an individual DNA sequence means for someone, you need to be able to compare it to data sets um, that have been very kindly donated by other people um, and their DNA is explored and analysed and then you can make comparisons between the two and that's the way that you can work out whether the DNA in the person that you're looking at um, is likely to be predictive of disease or not. So these large data sets need to exist from people all around the world, different ethnicities, um, different ages, some well people, some ill people, and that's basically how you're going to work out what to do with genomics is have these data sets that you can compare to. Genomics is now sweeping across the healthcare settings, so more people are having genomic tests than ever before, and also more people are concerned about future health and if you've got a well person who's worried about future health you don't know how those genes are going to play out in that individual so you need to see how they've played out in other people first. What are some of the concerns people have when they're confronted with donating their DNA to a data set like this? Well many people aren't aware that these data sets are needed and also many people might not be cognizant that their data is already in data sets. Um, so if, for example, they've ever donated blood, then um, their DNA from that blood may actually be used in, um, in many large genomic studies already, um, and they may not actually be aware that their data is being used in that way. Um, and most of this data, the vast majority of this data, is completely anonymous, so it doesn't have personally identifying information attached to it. And so when you make it anonymous, it's incredibly useful, and it's being used all around the world at the moment. 
So what are some of the ethical issues? Well, I suppose as a as a person interested in social science and ethics, I would argue that your DNA can it ever be truly anonymous? You know, it's your most personal profile and it tells you about your past, present and future health. And if you've got something very unusual or interesting in there, you might be the only person in the world with it. So actually, theoretically, you could be identified from it. So um, there's a question mark there about whether DNA information can ever be truly anonymous. And one of the things that I'm interested in is, are people interested in sharing their information? Are they worried about being identified from it? Um, What harms do they perceive could happen if their name and address is attached to this this code um, and if so what harms might there be and often people will say things like I'm worried about insurance discrimination um, I'm worried about and um, being stigmatized in some way but also people have also said funny things like I'm worried I might be cloned I'm worried that uh, my DNA could be planted at the scene of a crime <laughs> and so people have all these kind of it, it often gets them to think about conspiracy theories as well which which also interests me well let's leave the cloning worry aside I mean that does keep me up at night but um what about insurance what about the fact that at some point maybe the insurance companies could say hey you've got a gene for this uh, we're going to raise your premiums. Yeah. So the, the question about insurance always comes up when we talk about genetics. And, and actually, in the UK, we have a moratorium which protects us. So that means that insurers are not allowed to ask us if we've had a genetic test and they're not allowed to use um, weighting of policies on the basis of a genetic test, um, apart from in some very exceptional circumstances. Um, they are allowed to weight a policy according to your family history. But if you have a genetic test and then that negates your family history because it puts you in the clear, then you can tell them and then they can take off that weighting. So in a way, we, we shouldn't be discriminated against by insurers. And I know there's big discussions about making this more permanently into legislation so that we can really relax and know that we are protected and we're safe and we're not going to be discriminated against. But the other thing that crosses my mind is um, that all of us have something in our DNA um that will predispose us to some disease in the future and you know none of us get away scot-free so particularly when you're starting to think about looking at 20,000 or so genes in one go so I personally feel that if insurers do discriminate on the basis of genetics then they'll have nobody to insure because we all have something in there and what about advertising um, say I mean already on um, social media I get plenty of targeted adverts and I usually know what's sort of given them that idea mm-hmm. that I'll like a certain thing what about in the future I mean we still don't know everything we do know about the gene and there might be a gene that means you're more likely to like a certain product or something like that and then could you be vulnerable to sort of targeted advertising yeah and I I think you know, until we actually ask people what are they concerned about and they start to imagine what the possible scenarios are, oh, we don't really know what people are worried about, but certainly being targeted for inappropriate marketing has popped up in the research that we've done. Um, and that does make me think that we need to be clamping down on the ways that people can, you know, misuse our data. And that's um, something I know the Department of Health are very interested in. And it may well be that we can get protection in legislation against that sort of thing. But being targeted for inappropriate marketing, my goodness, that happens to us every day, doesn't it? And um, we don't really want um, exposure to DNA information to add to that. 
Give me an example of the possible good that can come from this big data with genomics. What kind of thing could it, how could it improve someone's life? The steps forward in the genomic world are really looking at improving human health. You know, what is it that's underpinning disease and what's the interaction between genetics and environment that's making people unwell or is protecting people. So we need to um, enable genomic research to happen on a massive scale in order to be able to really unpick what's going on in our genes. And we have 20,000 genes and we don't know what the vast majority of them do. And we also don't know what the DNA between the genes is really doing. So there's um, loads more knowledge that we need to gather. um, And the way to do that um, quickly um, is using large data sets. Um, So those data sets can be used in many different settings um, to help understand disease in an individual, to help understand population variation, answer non-profit research questions, um, and also to answer for-profit research questions like, you know, how are these medicines working in a particular groups of people? So we need all of these different um, data sets to be available to lots of different type of researchers so that we can really you know, improve human health. And what about those, um, there's a lot of home testing kits that's sort of um, a bit of a fad at the moment. Where does that data go? So the direct-to-consumer online testing, the business model for many of these companies is to sell your data to other companies. That's how they make their money. It's not from actually um, providing the testing to you, it's selling your data on. Anna Middleton. With data being kept anonymous by the researchers, there's a chance your DNA information could end up really helping someone. And a moratorium in the UK currently prevents insurers from asking for this information. But what about employers? Many people are aware of the nightmare scenario of the film Gattaca, the dystopian future in which your DNA dictates even the jobs you're allowed to get. But is this really something we should be worrying about? The EU currently bans genetic discrimination by employers, and in the UK, use of genetic tests by employers is restricted by the Equality Act. And in the USA, they currently have something called GINA. GINA is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And what it does is it prevents the use of genetic information in either employment or health insurance. Ellen Wright-Clayton is a professor of paediatrics and law at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. GINA was created because there was a lot of fear in the United States that If people had genetic tests, that it was going to be used to prevent them from getting jobs, to prevent them from getting health insurance. So the law was passed in order to reassure them with the idea that getting genetic testing could, in fact, be beneficial for their health. And so GINA was created. Has it been useful? Has it been used? Well, GINA actually hasn't been used all that much, in part because it doesn't apply if you already have symptoms of a genetic disorder. So there was a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that shows of the complaints to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a very small percentage of them even mentioned GINA, and even a smaller percentage actually relied on it. So why do we think this is? Is is it the fact that people aren't claiming or is genetic discrimination just not really happening? Well, I think there's a lot of debate about whether genetic discrimination is happening. Um, There certainly is not a lot of evidence of it, although people talk about it a fair amount. I think the real reason we're not seeing claims is because we have other laws that actually do a more effective job of protecting individuals. 
Cases of genetic discrimination do seem few and far between, but they're not unheard of. In Australia, lawyers identified three cases of employees who had positive genetic tests for either Huntington's or Alzheimer's who were then either demoted or lost their job entirely. And in America, the rules may be about to change. One of the things that's happening in the United States right now is that there is a bill pending in our Congress that would allow um, employers that provide wellness programs to get certain amounts of genetic information um, from their employees and to penalize them if they don't provide it. And so what I would say there, this obviously undermines GINA, the ADA, and the Affordable Care Act to some extent. And what is a wellness program? A wellness program is uh, that employers can um, give you incentives to do things that help you to be more healthy. And so they can have programs where you provide medical information, you can have your blood pressure taken, you know, they can check your weight and height, uh, they can give you incentives if you engage in uh in certain activities. So these are all things that were permitted under under the Affordable Care Act under the notion that it would actually help people be healthier. Oh, right. But now it's being argued that alongside all these things like blood pressure, weight, height, you can, you can be penalized if you don't hand over your genetic information, which I suppose that many people will feel very differently about. Um, I suspect they won't like being penalized if they don't hand over their genetic information. People are concerned that if employers have genetic information, they will use it in employment decisions, even though it's forbidden by GINA. Thinking a bit about genetic discrimination being made illegal in in this sense, what if, for example, um, let's paint a scenario, someone had a gene that made them more likely to get ill, either mentally or physically, if they undertook shift work? Wouldn't genetic discrimination in that case be a very good idea because it's preventing them from entering a job that might be bad for their health? Well, I think the question that you raise here is whether is how much choice individuals should have about the kinds of employment they take, the kinds of risks that they undergo. And so I think the challenge for thinking about the discrimination laws is deciding if there are choices that people shouldn't be allowed to make, if there are choices that people ought to be informed so they can make better decisions, or if the employer can simply decide um, paternalistically, that they just don't want that person in that position. So the fundamental question in discrimination law is who gets to pick. Okay. And because I suppose employers do discriminate on a whole bunch of things in uh, your intelligence, your your CV, um, your work ethic. So why should your genetics be different? I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because, of, of course, employers do discriminate on the basis of a variety of things. But the fundamental question always comes down to, are there some things that, as a society, we don't want to be used as the basis of discrimination? Genetic information is one, age is another, sex is another, race is another. And so even though all of those things actually might be quite pertinent to the employer, we just have made a social decision that that these kinds of factors can't enter into their decisions about who they employ and under what conditions. Ellen Wright-Clayton from Vanderbilt University, here on The Naked Scientists. 
So at the moment, there are laws in place, or at least being discussed, to protect us from the scenario Gattaca painted, where DNA dictates your very future. But are we giving DNA a little bit too much credit? If you know any identical twins, you'll know that they're not really identical. Our environment affects how we look, our personality and our health. Plus, there's something called epigenetics. Epigenetics refers to the inheritance of information in addition to the DNA sequence. Oliver Rando is professor of biochemistry at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. The easiest way to think about this is that every cell in your body has the same DNA. You all came from one fertilized egg. But when a liver cell divides, it never makes a skin cell or a kidney cell. So the liver cell is both passing on its DNA, the book of instructions, but also additional information, which is instructions to be liver cells. So state liverness is an epigenetic state. Okay, so it's the idea that all the instructions are the same in every single cell in your body, but only some of these instructions were meant to be read at any one time. So some of these genes are on and some of them are off. That's right. It's like a set of bookmarks in the book of your genome. Okay, and what kind of things can this affect? You mentioned it, it helps you divide into a person. You're not just one big blob of identical cells. But does it have any other effects on, on us as people? Yeah, so uh, epigenetic information, uh, which is often found in the, in the form of marks on your DNA, plays a role, like you said, in distinguishing one cell type from another. It also affects a lot of processes that are relevant to human health, like uh, glucose control, which is what goes awry in diabetes. Epigenetic defects can also be found in cancer and in developmental problems, things like schizophrenia. So epigenetic marks really do play a role in a lot of the processes related to, to your health. And um, what have you been looking at? Well, so our interest is in whether or not you pass epigenetic information from uh, one generation to the next. In other words, when a liver cell divides, it tells both of the daughter liver cells to be liver. But passing information on to your children as a human is quite different because the information has to make it into sperm and eggs. So what we study is uh, we ask the question of whether or not a father's environment can affect um, his offspring's health, uh, well-being or other phenotypes. OK, so how did you how did you study this? Well, so we study two main kinds of environment. Uh, we either give male mice different kinds of diets. So we give them low protein diets or high fat diets. Or another type of system we study is we give male mice uh, nicotine. Then we take the animals on a, on a, under particular conditions, like the low-protein diet, and we mate them to females, and we ask whether or not anything is altered in their children. And it turns out that the answer is yes. In the case of uh, altering a dad's diet, his kids exhibit altered metabolism. So they have alterations in how they deal with sugar and in how they deal with cholesterol. In the case of nicotine, the children exhibit alterations in how well they metabolize toxins. So in both cases, it looks like the environment experienced by a father can affect aspects of the offspring's health. And do we know how this is actually working, how, how this environmental factors is changing which genes are switched on and switched off in the baby? Well, we, we have some clues, but I would say that the, that is very much an active area of research right now. Uh, we think in the case of the low-protein system, our suspicion is that the, uh, that the information in sperm is comprised of small RNAs. Uh, but I would say that that remains to be proven definitively. And that's 
That's rats. Do we know of any documented examples of these epigenetic changes happening in humans? Well, there's a fair bit of evidence in humans that links a parent's access to food to changes in metabolic health in the kids. Uh, the most famous example is the so-called Dutch hunger winter. Uh, this is a famine that occurred in the Netherlands at the end of World War II. And pregnant women who were present during the famine have children who have increased rates of diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. And that has led to the idea that if a child grows up in conditions in the womb where he or she is not getting enough food, this will cause them to hoard calories later in life. And that can be a problem when they return to a, a world of plenty of food. So that, that occurs when the fetus experiences a famine. There's some evidence for a male line effect where it is being passed through the sperm, although there's much less evidence for that in humans, I would say. Will epigenetic information like this, like which genes are switched on and which are switched off, will they show up in a standard uh, genetic test? No, genetic tests don't look at epigenetic information at all. You have to look at epigenetic information on purpose. It doesn't fall out of just looking at the DNA sequence. The epi in epigenetic sort of means above, so it's sort of above or on top of the genome. So it's when you just look at the genome, you're not looking at that additional layer of information. And you mentioned earlier that epigenetic changes are loosely associated with some diseases like uh, diabetes or schizophrenia. So could we be missing something important with a genetic test? In the case of what are called Mendelian diseases, where if you break a single gene, it gives you a disease, such as cystic fibrosis would be a classic example of this. Uh, genetic testing tells you everything you need to know about your likelihood of having cystic fibrosis. Um, there are other diseases called complex diseases uh, that are influenced by many different parts of the genome and also by the, the way you live. And in those cases, let's say diabetes, we know it's highly heritable. So if uh, two parents have diabetes, their children are very likely to have diabetes. But when you add up all the pieces of DNA that are associated with diabetes, altogether they only explain a small part of that heritability. Uh, and so it's very likely, or it's at least plausible, that epigenetic information explains the so-called missing heritability for complex diseases like diabetes. Is it possible to do an epigenetic test on someone? It is, although in a lot of cases people... So one of the most uh, common epigenetic marks is a modification on DNA. So one of the bases of DNA, cytosine, gets marked with a methyl group. So this is called methylcytosine. Uh, looking at methylcytosine is uh, fairly straightforward, and it can be done across the entire genome. Uh, the only challenge with cytosine methylation is that it's different for different cells in the body. Uh, and so while your DNA is basically the same in every cell in the body, uh, cytosine methylation is different from blood to liver to kidney. And so I think the biggest challenge for doing uh, epigenetic testing of people is that you really want to look at the cell type that's relevant to the disease. Um, so while you can do genetic testing using a blood sample, um, if you're thinking about a disease that doesn't occur because of blood problems, like, say, schizophrenia, uh, epigenetic testing of brain tissue, of course, is a much more challenging task. So while reading out epigenetic marks is certainly plausible, I think the challenge with epigenetic testing is that although you can measure cytosine methylation or you can measure certain uh, epigenetic marks very well, 
there's a challenge in getting the correct tissue for a given disease, like brain samples. Do you think it will be the norm in future when people get their genes screened to get their epigenetics screened as well? It could be. I suppose it really depends on how much uh, missing heritability it explains in the end, uh, and that's an open question. So I certainly think over the next decade we'll be doing a lot of epigenetic screening just to see uh, how much it contributes to our understanding of disease propensities. Um, and if it helps a lot, then of course people will adopt it. Uh, if it doesn't explain so much, then I, uh, it will have been a fad. So far from being a future-gazing crystal ball, our DNA offers us a more fragmented and sometimes confusing image of our health. It can give us a clear picture, although we may not want one, of certain genetic diseases and afford us insights into our ancestry, maybe even give us some surprises about our family. And as science moves on, helped by big data sets, it will start opening frontiers into personalised medicine and nutrition. But will the laws in place be enough to allay our fears this information could be abused by employers and insurers, or, of course, people trying to clone you? And we still have so much more to learn about how our genes work and the complex role epigenetics has to play, as Oliver Rando put it. I think it'll keep us busy for some time. So whether you want the information you can get from genetic tests or whether you're happy for others to maybe get their hands on this data, it's a deeply personal choice. But thanks to the advances of the last 20 years, if you do want it, it's there for the taking. Thank you to all of the guests from this week. That was Patrick Short, Jonathan Roberts, Peter Forster, Anna Middleton, Ellen Wright-Clayton and Oliver Rando. Next week, we'll be exploring the gut from one end to the other. Do join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and thank you for listening. Listener.